$11 billion. It's an amount so high that it's hard to fully comprehend. But that's how much the German pharmaceutical and biotech company Bayer has paid to settle lawsuits over glyphosate since 2018. Glyphosate is the chemical commonly found in the herbicide Roundup since it was first sold to the public in 1974 by Monsanto. But since 2018, Bayer, which purchased Monsanto that same year, has faced more than 11,000 lawsuits, resulting in payouts north of 11 billion US dollars. The first three of those suits that went to trial have set a precedent for all the others. And the plaintiff's medical oncology expert who testified in each was Chatty Nabhan, MD. Dr. Nabhan is a hematologist and medical oncologist with nearly 20 years of experience in treating non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And he's just written a book about his experience in helping to expose the truth behind glyphosate via the details of those first three court cases called Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Chatty, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks, Trey. Appreciate the invite. Pleasure is all mine, Chatty. So before we get into just how you were involved in these first three trials that really exposed what was going on with Monsanto, then Bayer, and their product Roundup, which does contain glyphosate, wanted to get a little bit of background on you. So you're obviously a medical doctor who specializes in oncology and cancer treatment. Why did you decide to get into the world of cancer with your medical studies? Yeah, so I'm a medical oncologist, a hematologist, and uh, it's uh, actually, I, I never thought I would be a physician. I've always wanted to be a journalist. Um, I wanted to be a reporter. Probably that's why I end up uh, uh, writing, but uh, I've always been fascinated by journalism, but uh, I was born in Syria, and um, and there, if you know, I scored pretty good in in high school. I had pretty nice uh, grades, and I could have gone to any any school in the country. So I, you know, thought medical school is probably a safer bet to raise a family. Uh, that's what my dad told me, uh, and he was probably right. Um, so that's how I ended up in in medicine in general. And as I progressed in my career, I really started liking medicine as a profession because. Medicine has so much human connection that I don't believe any other specialty has. In the book that we'll be talking about, I actually do talk about how I really became fascinated in oncology. And it was not, frankly, initially the science or the molecules or the genomics. It was the fact that I had met a patient when I was an intern who had ovarian cancer, and she was in her mid to late 40s. And I was this intern three months into my internship, had no idea what was going on. And I walk into her room and just checking the vital signs because I'm going to report to my attending what's going on and what happened the night before. And she looks at me, it was October, and she looks at me and she says, uh, do you think I'm going to live until Christmas? It was October 1995. And uh I was taken aback. I wasn't prepared for the question. I had no idea how to answer. Um, and she knew that. She kind of felt it. And she, she felt it. She gave me a burden that I she didn't want to give me. So she she said, don't worry about it. I'll, I just hope to see your smile tomorrow. And, and, and right there, I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, this is just unbelievable. The, the, the ability of some patients to make you understand how much you're adding value to their day is something that does not exist outside of oncology. 
So I ended up being an oncologist and I, I, I loved oncology. I loved the relationships. I loved the science. I loved the progress. And I became interested in non-Hodgkin lymphoma specifically when I was a fellow at Northwestern University in Chicago. I worked with some of the top-notch lymphoma specialists in the country. And, uh, you know, you're often your career is shaped by what your mentors are doing. So I started liking non-Hodgkin lymphoma and, and that's how the story goes. And for the sake of context, for everything else that we'll be talking about today, what is non-Hodgkin lymphoma? I know most everybody has heard that term before, but people may not be familiar with what exactly it is. It's a good question. I do think it's important to simplify things. So really non-Hodgkin lymphoma is a form of cancer. Usually it involves the lymph glands that we have in our bodies and we have lymph glands. Sometimes you can feel them. Sometimes you can't feel them. They're internal. It could also involve the bone marrow. The bone marrow is this factory inside the bone that is responsible for producing the red cells, the white cells, and, and other cells. So the lymphoma, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, is a form of lymphoma that involves these lymph glands and or the bone marrow. And whenever you say cancer, it's basically this disruption between cell growth and cell death. Usually the cells are growing and they're not dying and they get to a point where they become cancerous and they continue to multiply. So non-Hodgkin lymphoma is a form of cancer that involves these organs. And it could be early stage where it's just in one area, one lymph node channel and chain, or it could be in multiple lymph nodes in the entire body, or it could be in organs that are not lymph, lymph nodes. So it could be in the liver, for example, sometimes in the thyroid gland, it could involve the uterus, the kidneys, but basically, by large, non-Hodgkin lymphoma is a form of cancer that involves the lymph glands and sometimes the bone marrow, occasionally the bone marrow alone without the lymph glands. So in spring of 2016, you were contacted by a law firm to see if you would be willing to serve as an expert witness in litigation against Monsanto and their product Roundup, which contains glyphosate which they believed had caused the uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma in their client, a man known by, uh, by the name Lee Johnson. Why did they call on you, and what ultimately made you say yes? Initially, the call was, in general, to look at um, my opinion between the relationship of Roundup exposure for patients who were diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And I can tell you that I used to be called a lot for to be to, to serve as an expert witness in malpractice cases. We all know what malpractice cases are. And I, I never said yes. I, I didn't like these. I mean, I, I, I always felt there are nuances in medicine and how you take care of patients that could get lost in translation when you're talking about malpractice cases. This one, um, I've always known when I seen patients that pesticides increase the risk of developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. This was something I was taught by my uh, faculty, by my attendings, by my mentors, but I did not know much about Roundup and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I, I, I've known it existed. I just did not know that relationship. So I started researching this um, and I was really uh, flabbergasted by how much reports were out there. Not only how commonly Roundup is used as the most common herbicide used in the world, in the United States, of course, 
But also there's a lot of this back and forth. I mean, there are reports saying it causes lymphomas. Other reports say, no, it doesn't. There are papers there, papers there. And, and I thought, you know, the impact of this, if it is true, is going to be significant. Because you're talking about an herbicide that is very, very commonly used all over. So if there is a true association and causation between that and for some patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, then really the impact on of that is going to be substantial. And um, and I thought I'd like to be part of that. Um, uh, they called on me because of my expertise in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I think they got my name through uh, folks that they've worked with. And they said, we're looking for somebody who understands non-Hodgkin lymphoma, who has taken care of patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And, uh, and that's how they really got hold of me. And I really hesitated because I didn't think I'll have the bandwidth um, I'm glad I did it in, in hindsight, in retrospect, but um, I didn't even know how big this was going to be. I mean, to be honest, you, you never know about these things until you realize the magnitude. I'll say one other thing, uh, one more thing, Trey. In general, most lymphomas, we don't know what causes them. So when you see a patient that has non-Hodgkin lymphoma and you're sitting in your clinic and you're discussing why it happened, because that's that's the most common question, right? I mean, if somebody gets cancer, the first question you ask is, why did I get it? It's normal, we're human. And most often, your doctor might say, I don't know, it just happened, and we are going to focus on treating it, and we're going to move forward. But there are some patients that you're able to tell them why things happened. And for these patients, it's important. It means a lot. It could actually provide closure it could provide counseling to avoid further exposure. It could provide counseling for their other colleagues and friends and whatever it is. Knowledge is power. And if I'm able to contribute to increasing knowledge, then I've done something good, hopefully to patients and their families. I loved that answer. And one of my favorite parts of your book, Toxic Exposure, is you relating some of the background research that you had done on glyphosate and Roundup uh, in the early pages of this book. So for those who don't know, Monsanto began selling the weed killer Roundup in 1974, which does contain and has since the beginning the active ingredient glyphosate. Why did toxicology research not bear this out when Monsanto was gaining approval from the S, uh, from the EPA some 50 years ago to put this on the shelves? I mean, the story is is pretty convoluted, as you probably saw in the book. I mean, there's, you know, the, the first commercial use of Roundup was, like you said, Trey, 1974. And in the beginning, if you think, if you go back to the 70s, probably the EPA was not well equipped to understand everything that's actually going on. And there were certain things that Monsanto and other companies, they were supposed to do. And in the book, I describe how they've utilized some registration studies through a lab, actually in Northbrook, Illinois, close where I live. Uh, it's IBT labs. And it turned out that this lab was a complete fraud. It turned out that this lab actually fudged data and they made up data and everything was actually wrong. It affected much of these registration studies that Monsanto did and other companies were doing. Uh, and this was discovered, by the way, it was reported and the uh, uh, founders of the lab were uh, taken to court. And, and, and there was I mean, this was happened in the late 70s and 80s. But these studies were never repeated again. 
there were other studies that were done and it, you know it goes back and forth i mean depending on you know the epa for example uh, evaluated a study called the mouse study when they actually found that when you expose mice to glyphosate there's uh, evidence of some uh, tumors that could actually evolve and and then you know this was contested by monsanto that this is not true because we can find tumors in mice that were not exposed and they hired a pathologist who came in and looked at the slice of well, i can't find anything so there was you know again it, it's it's very convoluted story even the epa they changed their classification of glyphosate they initially thought, well, maybe it is, and they said, oh, no, it's not. And then it says it's completely safe. It absolutely has nothing, despite evidence that animal studies showed this. I can't speak for the EPA. I don't have any evidence that the EPA necessarily, uh, you know, was colluding or doing anything. And I, I want to make sure anybody who is listening, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. But it just looked a little bit weird to me because they changed the classification without really any solid data to suggest that everything suddenly became safe. So some of these things came up in court um, when I testified and they were presented to the jury. Uh, in my opinion, the EPA did not do a lot of due diligence and they should. The good news is um, they are were asked by court to re-review the evidence they were supposed to re-review the evidence and provide their report by the end of 2022, but they requested an extension. So now by court order, the EPA is reviewing the evidence again to make a decision whether glyphosate is safe. We don't have the final report yet. Last time I checked, um, will be interesting to see what the EPA finds out in reviewing the evidence one more time. Well, I appreciate you showing enough respect for the EPA to uh, not state unequivocally that uh, their opinions have been tainted by bureaucracy and also the power of the U.S. dollar as well. But when you look at the history of things through the 1980s, I mean, even people within the, e uh, the EPA were starting to scratch their heads with regards to some of the findings that were getting things passed by the end of the 1970s. So much so, as you just talked about, that the EPA said, wait, we actually have some questions about Roundup and glyphosate here. And they actually temporarily classified it as a possible carcinogen in 1985 before ultimately revoking that two years later. And here's the biggest problem with that chatty is that say you are unsure about the data because there are con conflicting uh, bits of research that suggest one thing over the other. They also declined to do any sort of re replication studies a couple years after that as well. So when you take all of that into consideration to go along with them back in 2019, uh, offering up a another convoluted change in their opinion on glyphosate and Roundup where well, it's totally safe as long as you're using it as directed. And here we have them a couple of years later continuing to push that rock up the road further and further. It's hard not to wonder if there isn't something nefarious going on there. Yeah, I think we should wonder. And I think we should demand from regulatory authorities and basically the authorities that are tasked by our government to protect the people, right? And to protect the environment. It is called Environmental Protection Agency. I think we should demand that, um, but uh, you know, until today, until today, uh, the EPA contest, contends that uh, glyphosate is safe. It is not carcinogen, and uh, I think that uh, we should sometimes do our independent studies and our independent opinion. As I said, I mean, I have said that in court uh, uh, on the stand, 
uh, under oath. I was not aware before I got involved with this of the magnitude nor of the link between Roundup and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But I was intrigued enough to do research and really to understand what's going on. And remember, not, science is never perfect, Trey. I mean, nothing is really perfect. I mean, how many times have you gotten, you went to a doctor just, you know, and you had some complaint and he says, well, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure what's going on, right? But I, I think this probably appears more plausible. Let me try, you know, take these pills for the next five days and give me a call. I mean, it does happen because sometimes we may not be 100% sure. We need to be humble and we have to have humility because if you think you know everything, you've lost path, in my opinion. But the same thing here. I mean, if you, it is ultimately we must look at the evidence and research. I mean, I've always say the Monsanto employees and the lawyers that have defended Monsanto, they are also people and they are going to be patients at some point. We're all going to be patients and we should really try to demand of the folks who are protecting us the same thing we demand from, 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 from our, for ourselves. I mean, we, we have to do this. So I don't know exactly what happened behind closed doors between the EPA and Monsanto and if anything happened. I think there's a lot of smoke, in my opinion, and there are certain things that I describe in the book and certain email communications and correspondence that were shown in court, actually, uh, that were very fishy kind of thing. But again, I mean, um, the EPA has never said we've done anything wrong. Monsanto to this day, as you know, have never said they've done anything wrong. They said the glyphs is safe, even with the with the court uh, rulings, even with the settlements. They said we're doing this just for economic reasons. Glyphosate is safe. We have not done anything wrong. So um, welcome to the legal world. Your first deposition in the very first case between Monsanto and a plaintiff involved the case of Lee Johnson, and that was in August of 2017 where you were questioned by plaintiff attorneys and Monsanto's lawyers about whether glyphosate and Roundup could cause cancer. Considering that this was your first time going through such an experience, how was it? Yeah, I just want to have one point of clarification. So the August 2017 deposition was what we call general causation, which means that that, that deposition was specifically designed to look at my opinion, regardless of which patient whether do I believe glyphosate and Roundup cause cancer and lymphoma or not. And then after that, subsequent depositions were very specific to Lee Johnson. I was petrified. I was scared. I was, I had really no idea what to expect because I think that um, with time, I've done more research about Monsanto and the fact that they were acquired, they were going to be acquired by Bayer big companies have lawyered up and and here I am um, uh, being asked for my opinion. Uh, I wasn't obviously the only expert witness trade or other many expert witness who are smarter than me and and more equipped than me to answer. But to answer your question, I was scared. I was nervous. I did not know what I will, how I will answer. I realized I'm going to be under the microscope. Every answer I will actually provide is going to be scrutinized and and um, I knew I was going to be tricked probably to say certain things that are going to play in favor of Monsanto uh, I call these sound bites if they're able to get you to say something that's going to play in their favor in court it's 
bingo, because now they can show this in in court and say, oh, well, hold on, this is what you said in August 2017. And now you're, you know, it's, you know, it's a, a lot of these things. So I was very nervous. I prepared like I was preparing for the biggest test in my life. I, I read every study, I read every line. I was very heavily prepared, but I was very nervous, very scared. Uh, it was nerve wracking. You met Lee Johnson weeks after that first deposition. What did you take away from that encounter? He's a, he was, he's, he's a very humble man. Um, he felt the system has failed him. That's how he felt. I mean, when I met him, he was very uh, self-conscious about his skin appearance. And he was very, uh, he had some pain in his hands because of the skin lesions. And even when I was going to shake um, his hand, he was not um, really, um, he just felt uncomfortable. He was very proud of his job. He was very happy to be, you know, to to do, uh, you know, the ground, you know, be, being the in the schoolyards and all these things. But he felt the system has failed him, and he felt I I wanted to know. I mean, why didn't he really tell me what's going on? And then um, he um, he had called Monsanto after he developed the skin lesions and the lymphoma. He said, you know, I think this is related to it, and they never responded to him. He was very upset about that. He kind of felt. You know, it's like a customer service 101. You don't, by returning my call, you're not going to really admit anything, but at least just return my call. But um, so, so uh, he was very disappointed. He was very humble, very nice guy. He has gone through a lot of treatment and, uh, but he felt the system has failed him and he was looking for justice. As you were gathering evidence for the link between glyphosate use and cancer, how did the Swedes prove to be especially helpful here? So the, you know, um, look, the highest level of evidence, if you, again, and this, I don't want to go too technical for your listeners because um, I want to simplify things. But if you think about it, the highest level of evidence is you take 100 people and you spray them with Roundup upside down and you take another 100 people and you don't spray them with Roundup and you monitor them for the next 10 years and you see if anything happens. That's not ethical. It is never going to happen, right? It's just not going to happen. You're not going to respray people and say, I'm going to see if, if you get cancer or not. So then you have to resort to other types of evidence. And one of these evidence type of evidence is what we call case control studies, which is you go and take a look at patients who develop non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and you ask them questions in terms of their exposure and other things that they may have had in the past. And you compare these to other patients, to other people who have similar age and sex and other demographics, and you ask them about their exposure, and you compare them, and you try to make a, a balance and see if there's really any evidence uh, of uh, or any suggestion of that. I think one of the first studies that were published was by the Swedes. Uh, they have a registry in Sweden that they follow all patients who are diagnosed with cancer, and they look at their exposure level and everything that they've had, and they try to make sense of all of the information that they gather. I do think that uh, one of the most important studies was published by Ericsson. Uh, Ericsson is the last name of a Swedish investigator who looked at the amount of Roundup or glyphosate that folks get exposed to and the risk of developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And what he found 
is that the more exposure, the higher the risk is. Common sense, but it's good to see it. I mean, if you smoke uh, one or two cigarettes, probably you'll be okay. If you keep smoking forever, your risk you know, goes up. I'm not endorsing smoking, by the way. Um, and then, and then the, the Canadians actually had another study uh, by McDuffie is the last, the, the last name of the author. This was published in 2001. Hard to believe. It's 21 years ago. And what she also found uh, that the more exposure, the higher the risks. And I've got two studies, one from Canada and one from Sweden, telling you that the more exposure to glyphosate, the higher the risk of developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But I think the Swedish registry that was combining all of the data that is coming out of patients diagnosed with cancer and then looking backwards and seeing at their exposure and other things was probably the one, the, 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 the tip that led people to start investigating further. So what was the 2015 International Agency for Research on Cancer report that really began to shift the public perception on glyphosate and was also such an important component in these trials? Yeah, so the International Agency on Research on, uh, of Research on Cancer is a, is a division from the WHO. It's a subdivision of the WHO, the World Health Organization. What that division is tasked with is to take a look at certain compounds that we probably have heavy exposure to in general, and maybe there's some preliminary evidence that they may cause cancer. And then they go back and they, you know, they combine thought leaders in the field and they try to study whether there's a link between that particular compound and material and the development of cancer. But what they do is they do two important things. One is they look at the published studies. So it is important for the IARC to look at studies that were published in peer-reviewed journals. So they don't really evaluate non-published studies. Rarely they may do, but they really look at published studies. Number two, they allow observers and outside observers. So it's very transparent process to actually do. In fact, there was you know, I believe there was a Monsanto representative who was present during the IRC deliberation. So again, there is there is the um, there is the uh, transparency period out of it, and, and and in fact, the folks who uh, opine in this um, they don't get compensated; they just get their trip and their flights and their hotel, but they don't really get paid extra for it. And lastly, IRC looks at the totality of evidence, which is really important. So they look at the animal studies. They look at cellular studies on the cellular level. Does this compound, does this material cause problems on the cellular level? And they look at human studies. So they look at human studies, animal studies, and cellular studies. What did IARC find? IARC investigators found that on the cellular level, glyphosate causes lots of problems with chromosomes and DNA and breaks the DNA and does all of these things. And these things could predispose folks to develop cancer. They looked at the animal studies and conclusively they said, well, it does cause cancer in animals. It could cause cancer in animals. At the human studies, they couldn't be 100% sure. There was some evidence that it does and some evidence that it doesn't. So they said, you know, it's probable but again, because they could be confounded by other things, which is the nature of human studies. Because like I said, for human studies to be 100% sure, you got to take two cohorts and spray those and don't spray those and follow them for 10 years. Well, it ain't going to happen. 
it shouldn't happen. So they looked at this and collectively, based on the cellular studies and mechanisms of action, because you have to propose, you know, why does this compound cause cancer as an example? So they had some evidence as to why glyphosate could cause cancer. They looked at the cellular studies and the mechanistic studies. We call them mechanistic studies. They looked at the animal studies and they looked at the human studies. Collectively, they came up with that glyphosate is a probable human carcinogen. That was the conclusion of the IARC and they evaluated all of the evidence. And then they, again, um, uh, you know, that was a very important report in my opinion. Yeah, and interestingly, Monsanto ends up getting caught ghostwriting counters to the IARC's conclusions on that research paper, but people are just going to have to read the book to find out more about that. So nearly two years after that initial phone call, you finally took the stand in San Francisco where this case was being held. By this point in the trial, the jury had learned all about the animal studies linking glyphosate to cancer, toxicology data, the ghostwriting, and how the EPA and EFSA were interpreting evidence. So what were you hoping to add at this point, and how did that cross-examination with Monsanto's litigator of the year go? Yeah, <laughs> two good questions. I think the first one is my goal was to, you know, really to put all of this information that the jury has gotten over the past couple of weeks concisely in a way that they can understand how they apply to this particular patient, Lee Johnson. Because I think ultimately it's important to bring it down to this patient in front of you. That based on this evidence and based on this particular case, I believe that glyphosate and Roundup caused lymphoma in this particular patient. Because Trey, lymphoma, not, not every patient, not every person, that sprays Roundup is going to develop lymphoma. And not every lymphoma is caused by Roundup. This is not the issue here. Nobody should say, well, I don't think Roundup is healthy, period. I think we should not, but that's, but it's important to acknowledge that just because you sprayed Roundup does not mean you're going to get lymphoma. And just because you have lymphoma, it doesn't mean it came from Roundup. But we need to take a look at each individual case. My role in that case was to describe to the jury the case of Lee Johnson and why in his particular condition, he developed lymphoma because he was spraying Roundup. It was called Ranger Pro in his situation, heavily every day, five days a week and had some spelling accidents. And I needed to explain that in a concise manner, in an easy to understand manner, so they can really relate to what happened to Lee Johnson. I was very scared of, um, you know, uh, Counsel Lombardi. He is well known. Uh, I mean, again, litigator of the year, won awards. I mean, who am I compared to him, frankly? He's, you know, in the courtroom for him is like, you know, like his house, because this is what they do. These are the litigators. Um, so I was really very scared. And he is actually, a, he, he has a very nice demeanor. Like he's not one of those guys that is very, you know, um, he does not come across as arrogant. He does not come across as, he comes across as a friendly person. He connects well with the jury. He has a very nice friendly smile. So these are, he's obviously very experienced. So it's certainly, you know, having been deposed by so many lawyers over the past several years, I can tell you he was very respectful. He was 
Very nice. You would know exactly when to push your buttons and when not to. So certainly I was extremely intimidated and I was just hoping that how intimidated I was will not show, <laughs> will not show to the jury. Uh, and I think I held my own pretty good after the first uh, few minutes when I was a little bit nervous, I think I started to settle down. Do you have a proudest moment from thinking back on the back and forths that you had with Lombardi? You know, I think, uh, uh, I don't know if it's proudest moment, but I, 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 Sometimes I think I, you know, I I have a, just a quick comeback. I mean, I recall uh, I was on the stand. He was cross-examining me, and I I think I had like dry throat, and I just wanted to get uh, bottled water. And then he came in and, you know, in a friendly gesture to show that he's going to get me the bottled water. So he brought a, a bottled water and was handing it to me. And I asked him in front of everybody, does it have Roundup in it? And um, everybody kind of laughed a little bit. And I think, um, you know, oftentimes it's not, you're not there really to throw jokes. And I wasn't really intending to, it just happened, just came out, it just came out. <clears throat> but I kind of tell that um, the jury liked it and they connected with me and and he did not necessarily have anything to, to say to that. So it's one of those things that um, is important to connect with the jury, the jury, need to believe you and they understand how credible you are because the first thing that Monsanto will do they want to really poke holes in your credibility if they're able to convince the jury that you are not credible then they can the jury will not believe anything you say and if they try to poke holes that you're not credible and you're able to come across no I am credible then they will look bad because then they'll look like the bad guys trying to keep attacking you and they're unable to score any points. There's a lot of strategy in the courtroom. Let me tell you, it's like, um, like a tennis match, chess match. We're going to fast forward a little bit now. After closing arguments, including a uh, brilliant one by Brett Wisner, who was representing Lee Johnson, the jury deliberated. Eventually, they came back with guilty verdicts all around against Monsanto and around $250 million in punitive damages awarded to Johnson. What was it like for you to watch and hear this decision on your phone pulled over on the side of the road in Chicago? I, I, I felt so good. I, you have no idea how good I felt. Uh, the one thing I will say is a trial is never won because of one person's effort. If anybody thinks that they are the reason the trial won, they're a little bit too conceited, in my opinion. This was not won because of me as an individual. This was won because of a collective effort from all the experts, as well as from the lawyers who've done a superb job. It's a team effort. But I played a role in it, I and I had a very important role. And somehow I've, you know, I was feeling if we lose, we're going to lose because of me. And there was so much like, you know, this heavy weight on my shoulders. Obviously, had we lost the Lee Johnson trial, I'm, I'm pretty sure now that I don't think it would have been because of me, but that's how I felt. So I felt so proud that I really played a small part in a historic trial. It's the first trial ever in the history of Roundup and... And I was in it. I was right there in it, in the courtroom. I, I played a role and uh, I, I believe that my role 
um, what I did helped the jury understand why Monsanto was guilty. So I was very proud of the team, what everybody has done, and proud of the fact that after two and a half years from that first phone call, we got a winning verdict for Lee Johnson. I was very happy for him. We're not going to have time to go over the other two trials today, but the second trial was also a rousing success. Monsanto ordered to pay $80 million in punitive damages, with the third trial eliciting a $2 billion punitive damage ruling. Now, these numbers inevitably eventually end up going down, too. But that had to have felt really good at the end of those second and third trials to see the sorts of difference that you and your colleagues were making and really holding this company that had been negligent to a pretty awful degree for going on decades now. They were finally being held accountable for their willingness to pursue profit over the good of the public. Yeah, the second trial was particularly interesting because it was in federal court in front of Judge Chabria, who was really the federal judge who was presiding over the entire um, Monsanto saga, if you will. Uh, and yes, it felt really good to be able to also play a role in this. And the third trial with two elderly couple also felt very good. And it was, as you said, an unbelievable high verdict. And I believe the jury in the third trial, they really wanted to send a message. I suspect everybody knew that probably they're not going to get the $1 billion per plaintiff stand. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. But I think putting that number out there was a clear message to Monsanto that we see it, we don't agree with your behavior, Roundup is not good, and you need to do something about it. Um, so it felt really good to be part of these three trials. And the message has been received in some way, shape, or form. I know we keep saying Monsanto, but Bayer actually bought Monsanto just before that very first trial commenced. Very questionable business decision by then. But within the last few years... Uh, Bayer did announce that it would stop U.S. sales of Roundup for residential use and remove it from store shelves by 2023, but farmers will still have access to the glyphosate-based product. There was research that came out last summer, Chatty, that found 80% of U.S. urine samples contain glyphosate, and that's not from people spraying it on their lawns or out in random fields. That's coming from the foods that we're consuming that have already been sprayed themselves by a glyphosate product. So I guess my question for you is why is glyphosate still being allowed to be used by farmers? Look, if if I were to make a decision, I would just ban the use of Roundup period. Uh, and I think that is with more research, with more data coming out, in my opinion, you always think of a particular compound, is it causing net harm or net benefit? Because sometimes, you know, it's never going to be, it's 100% bad or 0% bad. I mean, obviously Roundup is a very good weed killer. My goodness, people who use it for killing weeds, I mean, they love it. In my opinion, it causes net harm. And if there's something caused net harm and or net negative, then we should really not use it. But that's really not what happens in court. Believe it or not, there's no warning label on it to this day. So in tobacco, in smoking, you know, you could go and buy a pack of cigarettes. I mean, I don't think you should, but you could. However, you, you know exactly that it could cause a problem, but you're an adult, you wanna have a choice 
and we must respect your choice even though we don't agree with it. I think the same thing should happen with Roundup. You should put a label and you should really make sure people are aware of it. And if you still really want to spray and expose yourself, it's your choice, but at least you know what you are getting into. Well, that's not what happened. There was nobody that ordered. I mean, there's no decision that Monsanto needs to, to do this or Bayer needs to do this. But um, at least taking away from residential use, which I hope it happens sometime this year, we're told this year, is a small win. And Trey, we need to take the small wins. I think there were a couple of wins that are really important. A, a lot of people today know more about Roundup and Monsanto than they've ever known. This is a win. B, even if you take it away from use from small cohort of people, this is a win. And hopefully with time, there will be additional wins. Now, we don't know what's going to be replaced with. We are told it's going to be replaced by something else with a different ingredient, not glyphosate. And my question is, well, what is it? Can we Do we have safety studies? And the third one, I believe, is that the EPA was told by court order, go back and re-review the evidence. You did not do the due diligence that we expect of you. These are not unreasonable wins, given the complexity of this and given the fact uh, what's actually going on. I genuinely, what I would want for anybody who, again, there are people who will defend Roundup to bone and, and they will say it's absolutely safe. And I think uh, if, if, if that's what they feel, um, others may not feel the same and they need to be warned, they need to be aware. I hope my book sheds some light into what actually happened and actually helps the public a little bit more. And I hope these small wins lead to major wins after all. I think it will. Look, ultimately, the big tobacco companies faced enough pressure that they finally had to admit that smoking causes cancer, despite the fact that everybody knew it by then. I think this was about 20 years ago. Bayer and these and, and some of these other companies will eventually have to admit the same thing. It's just a matter of how long that takes. Now, speaking of you uh, trying to do good by the public, uh, you have a podcast that I am now subscribed to and I'm probably going to be a big fan of before too long. So what exactly is Healthcare Unfiltered? Yeah, I appreciate your word of endorsement means a lot. So yeah, I've started this podcast a couple of years ago. Healthcare Unfiltered is a podcast about healthcare, about general topics in healthcare. Um, I try not to make it very specialized because I really direct to the public and people who are not necessarily physicians or nurses or in healthcare. Um, and I tackle all topics in healthcare. It is actually completely unfiltered. So my guests can say whatever they want. They can be themselves. I don't really do edits. I just add some music and make sure that they are really themselves. My topics range from I had an episode a couple of weeks ago on diet and cancer. I had episodes on the keto diet and uh, cholesterol. I had an episode on exercise. And then I have more specialized things, right? You know, what advances do we have in the treatment of lung cancer or breast cancer? I had an episode on naturopathic medicine and complementary medicine. So it's a wide range of healthcare related topics that I hope uh, resonate with the public. I think uh, you probably won't find every week episode, uh, something you wanna listen to, but I'm pretty sure you'll have some episode that you would love to listen to. It airs every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Central. And people can access that by uh, just searching Healthcare Unfiltered wherever they get their podcasts, or they can go to your website, 
which is chattynabhan.com, and that's N-A-B-H-A-N.com, correct? Correct. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can watch the podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chaddy Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can also access all of the podcast episodes on, as you said, on my website, chaddynabhan.com. You are not only a uh, licensed medical doctor, but you also have your MBA, something that you went to go get because you saw a growing issue in the medical community with regards to the disconnect that exists amongst the business people who run medical establishments and the uh, doctors trying to provide patient care. I think it was a great move by you, incredible foresight, especially with what things have become over these last couple of decades since you got your MBA. So I guess my question for you based on that, Chatty, is there an obvious solution to help the U.S. healthcare system evolve in a way that helps both patients and doctors? Look, the right answer that everybody wants to to hear on your podcast is yes but the answer is no i don't really think that the solution to the healthcare ecosystem is that easy um, there's a lot of complexity and so many stakeholders that um, are involved in this i you like to focus on small wins. So for example, I can't think we can solve everything, but I do think we can start taking small steps towards improving status quo. That's how I would look at it. Because I think saying that I'm going to solve all of the issue with healthcare, A, it, it assumes that we all agree what the problem is. It also assumes that we all going to agree on what the solution is. There are many folks who don't see problems and they are, you know, the problems for patients, for example, and we're all patients, right, is out-of-pocket cost and the healthcare insurance cost. So, for example, if you're paying $1,000 a month for your health insurance and your copay is very small and you get a bill of $100,000 from surgery or whatever it is, and then your out-of-pocket cost is $300. What you're going to say, oh my goodness, it was 100000 My insurance paid everything. I pay 300 I have a great insurance. I'm good. That's what most some people worry about. But the reality is it shouldn't be $100,000. Like why is it $100,000? And somebody else is paying. If you're not paying, somebody else is paying. And if the insurance company is paying, then they have to make the money back. And they make the money back by raising premiums for other people. So it's very complicated. I think we need to have small wins. And uh, what I would say that we need to, I do believe we need to have a little bit better regulation to drug prices. Um, I, I really do. I think there should be a way where we can lower drug prices while maintaining innovation. Because pharmaceutical companies say, if you're gonna lower our drug prices, we're not gonna bring you the good drugs and the better drugs to help patients. But I think there is a happy medium and hopefully we can find that. Um, I, I also think that we need to better understand, we need to look at the healthcare delivery system from a patient's lens. I don't like patients waiting. I don't like patients having to call the doctor and waiting three months to get in. I mean, I hate that, that's not normal. You should never be waiting that long 
um, I mean, you don't wait that long for a life for, for easy situations. You're going to change the oil on your car. You don't need to wait that long. Why for life and death for something pertaining to your health, we should be able to do better. So um, my answer is the first thing is we need to align into what are the problems that we can solve. And then we need to put our heads together and pretend that we are patients. What would we want when we are in that exam room in that hospital? I wish I had a better answer for you, uh, uh, Trey. I am a little bit more pessimistic into the state of healthcare today, and I'm hoping, and we talk in a year or two years from now, that we'll see things improving. Unfortunately, I feel the same way. That's why I think that it's important that individuals try and take as much control over their own personal health as possible. And it's yeah. you know it's easy to say diet and exercise and sleep and you know wellness practices like meditation but all those things do add up over time it's just like how you can have the negative consequence of smoking cigarette after cigarette over the days weeks months and years making more of those good decisions than bad can be very beneficial and not only extending your lifespan but more importantly your health span too absolutely i agree with you i mean i think it's it's important for us to take charge and to be empowered in doing this absolutely all right, there you go. He is Dr. Chatty Nabhan. The new book is Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Chatty, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this crucial book. Really appreciate both of those things. I really appreciate you taking the time and I hope folks uh, enjoy it and learn something from it and uh, let me know what they think. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com. Thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit booksonpod.com. We'll talk to you next time. Books on Pod.